You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni. Uh, Sam is obviously back in Yerushalayim. Not so obvious, though. Sam is obviously back in Yerushalayim, Iraq, Yiddish. And I hope to join you there. In a, in a week or so, to actually see you there, a phrasech biyachad, so to speak, to actually enjoy each other's company uh, one-on-one. The question is, will that be as good as on the airwaves? <laughs> so in other words, yes, Sam, that's stealing my thunder appropriately. Yes, even though we do I'm have... Sorry. It's all right. Even though we do have now these monthly get-togethers where I can see your visage and you can see me and Dolly and everything that we have here. And I can see what's going on with you. There is something that, that we so cherish about uh, the physical interaction. And I, and I wonder, really, let's start with this Nakuda. The fact that since COVID, especially, uh, there's been so much virtual connection through Zoom. And even before that, with the advent of iPhones and FaceTime, the difference between actually being in the same room as someone when you've seen that person consistently and often. And I actually want to delve a little bit deeper into it than that. Let's go back even before iPhones. Let's go back to our youth, uh, the 50s and 60s, the period where you were lucky, Sam, if you had two lines in your house. And, and the way to speak to someone was uh, through the old telephone and you know the it was the dialed phone and hopefully you get a you know the big heavy uh, receiver and you would talk into it as remember and you'd be able to speak to people sometimes the line was busy you weren't able to reach them there was no call uh, waiting to know that somebody was calling and yet i i wonder when those conversations did occur um where it was you didn't see the person's face you didn't know what they were doing uh, there was, I think, and I'm going to put this on the table for you, there was a certain significance and importance of those conversations that when you have FaceTime, when you actually see the person and see everything, you're right, the person could blank out certain things and put a, a fake background. But there was something about that conversation where it was just the words that were floating from you to the other person and back. I think had a certain power and significance that the FaceTime experience and the Zoom experience doesn't have. And I'm wondering, since Sam, the genie's out of the bottle, right? It, it, it's true, the, it, it, FaceTime and Zoom and its cousins and brothers are here to stay. What psychological price is that going to pay in people's interaction with each other, where it's going to be almost presumptive where when it's going to be a verbal conversation, the verbal conversation will be tethered to facial recognition as well. There's a certain, as you know, amount of privacy and aspect that you abandon when you speak to someone straight off. How is that going to change normal interaction, even intimate interactions of conversations? I want to stake out the playing field over here by just a counterpoint so that we can have this mapped out nicely. Um, remember going to camp, right? And of course, you know, uh, I don't like it. I'm be away from my parents or my family or whatever. And they said, no, don't worry. You can always, we can always write a letter, a postcard that you'll get two weeks later. And then the worst comes to worst, the phone call. And I remember also being in the dorm as a uh, too young of a kid 
you know, and then getting, you know, there we would actually talk on the phone with my parents, you know, for uh, every night even. It wasn't good enough. So I, what I'm saying is that you're presenting the, the um, uh, non-visual, uh, like just phone call, no, in contrast to the visual, you're not contrasting to being in person, although one can extend where the track you were going to saying that there is even a plus to just speaking, where you can concentrate on the content versus when you're with someone, when you concentrate on a whole bunch of, or you get distracted by a whole bunch of things. There's the other counterpoint also that somehow you yearn for something closer, at least kids do. And I imagine overgrown kids like, like all of us probably yearn for that as well. So I just wanted to throw that into the pot before we start dissecting what's going on over here from a psychological or social level. Well, let me just tell you that when I was growing up and I know that our parents had some similarities. But with my father, every long-distance phone call was sort of like going into enemy territory and un- and basically getting that bomb and making sure that you disconnected and running away as they shouldn't catch you because it had to be quick and fast, right? It's a long You're talking distance. about the cost. You're talking yes, about of course, course, because sure. all those calls were long-distance and they we, we had to be worried about every every minute that we were talking. Yep. So there was a lot of pressure in those long distance phone calls. Sure. To make sure you got it right. And okay, that's enough. Hang up. Because I, I, I know those bills were going to be looked at at the end of the month. Okay. So look, there are a lot of ways to attack this. Let me just start from Floyd. That's always a nice place to start, just as, as to, to map out a certain part of the area. And I just want to start with a, a debate that's been raging in, in, in psychology for hmm, over 100 years now. And the question is whether the entire need for contact between people is something that's intrinsic to our makeup or it's some kind of artifact coming from elsewhere, okay? And the Freudian perspective is that anytime we want to be intimate with people, I'm not speaking at the sexual level, you want to be close and intimate and feel you really connect with someone, that that is just a displacement from the frustrations you had of when your mother stopped being so close to you when you start getting weaned, when you started leaving the house and you would be in school a day or a week and then et cetera, et cetera, you got further and further that you yearn for that. And then since your mother is not around anymore as such a close companion, you displace that on friends, on people, on spouses, but really it's just a cry in the dark saying, oh, how I wish I can be back with mom and always be uh, carried around and be held so close and be secure. And then the counterpoint to that is something that's called object relations theory, which is where... Well, let me just interject for a second. Would that be true even when people stop breastfeeding? It would be true depending on how reactionary you are. There are theorists like such Melanie Klein or whatever who say that breastfeeding, after breastfeeding, there's nothing to talk about. Your personality is stamped already. Most psychodynamic psychologists feel that it goes even into like six years old or even seven years old, that just a close nurturing relationship is what's cardinal. But yes, there are, you see, even within Freud, there are reactionaries that are all the way out there. But the standard Freudian idea is that it's the childhood closeness that you're yearning for. And it's really with mom. You really don't care to have a mentor or, or a teacher or a good friend friend or a spouse it's all like a secondary uh, substance but, but, but how how much is it tethered in the oral satisfaction 
uh, nursing at her breast. No, no, no. That's just, there are other kinds of satisfaction we have, being secure from danger, being taken care of physically, even being encouraged to develop your identity as a little kid. You don't have to see it that badly. You don't have to, I mean, in, in that much of a restrictive way. But I just want to say, object relations theory basically says that Freud is mistaken. And these are almost all of Freud's students. And this is like most of psychology and all of psychiatry today, which maintains that we have an intrinsic need for closeness. Okay. But be it as it may, if you have that real she'ifa for closeness, which is really a given, either because of a displacement or not, there are some difficulties with all of communication if it's to serve as a substitute for closeness because we delude ourselves that what we really want to do is talk. What you really want to do is just cuddle, you know, on your mother's bed in a blanket while she's there watching TV. It doesn't matter. That's what you're striving for. The closeness, the the talking and the sharing and the crying and the laughing is just a way of reminding you that you're there, but you don't really need it. That's not what you're after. So, We have to be careful, at least when we assess the situations of communication now, that we realize that from a certain basic um, psychodynamic perspective, it's all baloney. We don't want to understand other people. We don't want to be close. We don't want to understand or uh, get the message. We just want to delude ourselves that this is how we're close. So for some people, unfortunately, they reduce it. I mean, there are some people who are very disordered who see sex as the ultimate closeness, and that becomes the substitute for really be close, which is really an ipchemistabar, it's taking it back. But for some people, understanding, having the same values, um, being able to enjoy the same kind of stuff, which is, a, you know, it's a, um, it's a faker eye. That's not really what it's all about. But if you take the perspective that we need to have close relationships, because that's part of our makeup, those things are as real as cuddling with the, you know, on your mother's bed while she's watching TV because you are having the close relationship. So I, I just like to mark that out theoretically when we contrast these things. And then, I mean, I'm sure you want to get into a host of practical issues of what it means to maintain a long relationship with your family, with your spouse, with your children, using, you know, phones and videos and what does it do to us? And how does it basically um, emaciate our personality? Since we are obviously programmed to be close, and this is like a closeness, like, yeah, I have 6,000 friends, you know, who couldn't care less if I dropped dead. You know, everybody likes me. What does like mean? They check something off. Sure. So even when Freud was um, developing his ideas, and even the students, the telephone was inserting itself as a major means of communication. That was not true 30, 40 years before that. And I just like to add, there was a series of that major means of cooperation and a major distraction from relationships. Because now you can talk, and that for an adult is supposed to be most of the, the reason why you want to relate to somebody is to talk and to share ideas. So really, we could, we, we, could, you know, we could take this conversation back to 100 years ago or 120 years ago when telephones became prevalent everywhere as to how human relations started to already fracture at that point and be more artificial. If you want to go to letter writing, you can go there as well. Okay. In other words, now we're really going back in a period when, let's say it even better, Sam, not so much letter writing, but when the efficiency of sending letters. We know even from the medieval age, there were letters that would go from one city to another, from a, a, a esteemed rabbi to another one. 
but it, would, it might take weeks and weeks and months until the answers came back. What happens in the, uh, with the Enlightenment is that the European countries and, and then and, and encountered what was going on in the, in the United States as well, they started being able to have an efficient way that a letter could reach you within four or five days or a week. And therefore, you're right, the, the idea of responding uh, through uh, an epistolary form became a much more common thing, um, uh, replacing, in some ways, uh, the interaction. Uh, I think that most of us applauded that, would, who, if we had lived there, we would have applauded that new uh, sort of, I would call it an invention, but really it's more just the progress of the world, the globalization of the world, because people could become great friends through letter writing. But what would you say about the people who said, we no longer need to meet and talk to each other, I'll send you a letter. It reminds me of some people in my family who say, I'll send you a WhatsApp. I say, how, how about you pick up the phone? I'll send you a WhatsApp. What do I have to pick up the phone? Right, so, I mean, so, so look, so look what happens there. So okay, you can but, applaud it as being available, but you can also decry it as taking away from what relationships are all about, okay. if you consider that's what the relationship yeah, is. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a comparison because I think if, uh, as being a little bit of a student of history, I think what 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 percolates in my head when I think about these letters, writings, whether it's uh, you know, great Rabonim who wrote each other or uh, you know, whether it was... Or statesmen. I mean, major yes, statesmen. Right. Yeah. Whether it was Jefferson writing to Adams was that the care and quality of the writing, yes, was, was, was stupendous. And what I find as a student of rabbinic literature and even of general uh, letter writing is that you see the carefulness that the responses were. They, they would take the sections of what the person had written and they would write their responses. Sure, I mean, you're basically contrasting sometimes even a good lecture and a published paper. The published paper is so much more sophisticated from the same rabbi or the same uh, professor. I agree, because you have time. Or to... this podcast versus read one of my articles. <laughs> it ain't the same. <laughs> right. But again, we, we'll talk about podcasts, why people have been uh, gravitating towards and what the what podcasts are about. I, I don't know if I, if, I, if I can hold forth in an expert way, but I think I have a certain gut sense as to why people are connected to that. But I think when letter writing became more standard, became more available through the postal service, so to speak, I think people became a little more thoughtful uh, and in their responses, they realized that they, the essays, so to speak, they would write were actually personal appeals and the language they would use to that other person would be measured and interesting. Your WhatsApp uh, people just want to write the quickest emoji and, and a couple of little points and then get on. As a cute historical note, I remember when they started curtailing daily mail service. I'm going to say there's no mail on Saturday. I felt that I was kind of losing my connection to the world until this electronic stuff started coming in. But there was a period, I'm, I'm talking like a 30 years ago when they started curtailing, I said, wait a moment, how can you deal one day without, you know, without the mail? It's not going to come in. I'm not going to know things. I'm not going to be able to be in touch with people before the uh, the electronic um, communication kicked in. So that also, sure. I, I should tell you, though, I had a very close friend who uh, was a, uh, worked in Bell Labs and was quite the ultra-intellectual. And when I first got 
internet service and being able to send email, uh, I remember writing to him and it, I, it took me hours to construct my sort of... No, we actually proofed those emails. My <laughs> letter essay to him. And he wrote me back in very quick, just very prose, just to the point. And, I, and, he, and he explained to me that that's not what email is for. Email is not meant to be reams and reams of paper to print out. It, it was a way to actually compress the idea and to actually throw out some of that more lyrical, uh, descriptive phrases. They were already castrating communication. That's what they were doing. I saw it as a way of saving a stamp in the beginning. Right. And, but people reprimanded me for that. No, the, your email should not be so long-winded. They should not be, you know, <laughs> stuff that you hope to publish one day as your collected writings. They are supposed to be really off-the-cuff, quick, almost like what texts are today, but a little bit less, you know, perhaps a little bit you know, less brief, having carrying a little bit more weight. So, yeah, so, so letter writing, I think, uh, when it developed, created a whole new genre of connection to the point that, you know, I, I'll just speak as a rabbi for a minute, there was a question that was raised uh, in the medieval times of someone who only knew his correspondent through letters. And they were going to have a chance meeting. And the question was, should he make a blessing or not? Uh, I haven't, because if you haven't seen a person uh, within a year or a long time, there's a bracha that you make, whether it's the bracha of Shechionu or the bracha of Mechayim And what was interesting was that, and this was a, an idea that was put forward by the Rav Bezden, that even though you know the person in some ways, you don't really know him as well. And therefore you have, on one hand, it's like you're meeting him for the first time. <laughs> and therefore, perhaps you would make a bracha. You're really going to know him now. Until now, you just thought you knew him. Now you're really... But then the counter-argument was maybe you've never known him and he's not really a good friend to make a bracha. The, the, the Talmud says, the Mishnah says, that this is on, on a chaver tov that you haven't seen in a year. Mm-hmm. This was never really your chaver. This was really the question that was was being raised. And it's really fascinating of, of the paradox here. Because on one end, you can say, well, I don't really know him. I'm not going to make a bracha when I see him. He's, he's a stranger to me. On the other hand, I know him because he's written to me and he's given me some of his deepest, intimate or interesting ideas about himself. So I think this really, you know, it does have some halachic bearing, this idea of of the medium of knowing someone. I would even argue, Sam, that in some ways, and people said this about, uh, Saul Bellow and others who many people thought on a personal level uh, were sort of snide and in a way pretentious and obnoxious, but they would say, yeah, but in their writings, they are glorious. You know? And so it, 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 you have that, di- that dichotomy started to develop, I think, in that letter writing era where you had someone who could distill the better parts of himself, like Bellow, Phil Broth, maybe others, and in their personal interactions were, were, were gruff and you know, aggressive. So it, it, it really is almost like a double-edged sword, what writing was able to accomplish. So let's move from that era of, of the epistolary era, which I think was something novel, to the telephone era where I guess what came at the same time, what was the miracle of radio at that time, 
right? It's sort of Marconi and Alexander Graham Bell. I don't know if the sciences that were used were of a, were on the same page, but it was pretty quickly following, right? When telephones become common, it wasn't long after that the radio uh, develops as a common f- f- fixture for people. So let's talk a little bit about telephone conversations then and until they morphed into FaceTime conversations. Do you believe that the, you know, besides the crackling that you sometimes had in the old days, but once the telephone lines were, were, were solid, do you believe those phone conversations have an aspect to it that, that make them deeper and stronger than FaceTime interactions? Well, one thing I remember, and this is from my dating days, okay, that dates and meetings with girls in my days, it was limited in time, right? Two hours, four hours, five hours, if you're frenetic, and then it ends. But let's say, so sometimes you can have a date, things work out, you haven't worked things out, and good, it's good that we didn't go any further. You can't escape it because you get a phone call saying about that thing we talked about, and that ruins me until four in the morning because that conversation, and I can't escape it at all. So in a sense, it was a way of tethering you in to something that can become and actually did become eventually for me with one of these young ladies. You know, I've been with her for a long time now. But it, it tethers you in to being more intimate and closer and sticking to what really matters rather than be able to brush it off. So I found that telephone there in the sense almost forcing you to be more closer and be, being forced to to actually tune in to the issues that you're able to not tune in before. But again, if you said, well, why do we even need to meet? We can just talk on the phone. So there, the question goes back to Freud and object relations. Are you really relating to the person then? Because it all becomes then content. It's not just, sometimes I remember like being with people saying, I just want to be here. I, it's fine. You know, like the, the, the sad cases, like when you're Menachem Abel, right? So the halacha is that you don't start speaking to the bereaved person at all because sometimes they just appreciate, or sometimes they don't want you to be there to begin with, but sometimes they just appreciate being with you. And sometimes I remember wanting to go home, I'll be with my parents just to be there. And that's something that they felt. So again, this, it, it does, and it, it, it gives you more opportunities to connect. The question is, are those connections um, good enough? Do they supersede the intimate connection that you had otherwise. And I don't think it's a yes and a no. I think it does some of that and some of the other. But, you know, for the intellectualizers, they can say, oh, that really didn't matter at all, but this matters. For the reactionary theorists like me, I say, well, this new stuff doesn't matter because the real stuff is the connection there. And I think it's a, both of them are true and not true at the same time. They're, it gives you and it takes away. Every innovation takes away some of the flavor and some of the um, genuine um, uh, aspects of what you had, but it gives you opportunities to connect in different ways. So I, I would posit something a little bit different, which is that even if it wasn't an extension of the date, as you say, or the commentary on the what happened when we were at Delmonico's. But that argument, let's... Let's finish that argument. Yeah, right. Or remember when we were, whatever it is, like a like a super commentary on the date later from the parties that were involved in. I think it also, it taps into an imaginative faculty that I think is a, is, is a, 
a positive one. And I think there's certain parts of your brain that light up when you are having this conversation and you can't see the person and you're imagining what that person looks, what that what's what's going on in that person's what what's happening in that person's face. You're imagining what it looks like. And in a way, because you're you could either close your eyes or you're you're watching your potted plant or you're taking out cat food for your cat, at the same time you're talking to someone, your mind and imagination is working in a way that it's not working now, like we're talking on Zoom with each other, and I'm looking at your face. If, if, if I'd be having this conversation, I'm wondering, does Sam appreciate that little turn of phrase that I used before? But now I can tell that you appreciate because I see it. I can see your grimace, right? So there, there's something about, like, sort of like, in a way, let, let, let's use the obvious muscle, the difference between radio and television. Uh, I mentioned before radio coming in, that there's something about a conversation using your imagination. And in some ways, that you you invest more into your listening than you do. Like, I, I'm listening at you, but I'm really looking at you and, and seeing whether you like what it's like, as opposed to the words that I'm saying and imagining what you're thinking. And I think that that, in a way, uh, the telephone conversation I, I'm positing is a richer interaction than the FaceTime. You're saying something very profound. And I'm saying that from my Freudian perspective, because since I see int- need for intimacy really hearkening back to some old unresolved issues with mom, that basically it's much easier to put me into mom's shoes when you don't see all the trappings which say this guy doesn't look like mom and doesn't talk, you know. But when you are talking, on the, you can construct, at least in the back of your mind, you can imagine, yeah, I could be having the same conversation with mom, but not when you see the guy with his beard. It doesn't work. Sure, but that's something very profound that basically we're looking, um, we would call it in psychology, a projective understanding of what a novel is supposed to be or what even the relationship is supposed to be, that it's only supposed to be a foil in which to replay things. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you know this, that in Freudian theory, even marriage is basically just a recapitulation of some old relationship you had with mom that you can no longer have, oh, for, for the women, the old relationship you had with dad but didn't um, really work out, well, now you have a chance to fix it and work it out. So there's something very profound to that, but it also, in a sense, um, takes away from the um, importance of the actual experience, saying we're just using this as an excuse to get to some old issues, or I'm reading Hemingway and I'm getting it into an interpretation which has totally to do with my neurosis, and Hemingway never would have plugged his neurosis into that into that picture. Right, but that's really art. That's art, right. See, I think of that more in terms of art. I personally don't think of literature that way because I'm just too OCD with content. When it comes to art, I'm willing to say, okay, there's a lot of room here. I can even go as far as to say that the artist or the sculptor actually wanted to leave room for me. I don't feel that way personally with literature, maybe because I was raised in an environment where literature was not valued and it was totally um, just read to get the message and understand the sociology. But, but you're more sophisticated that way and you have a more like urbane education. So for you, sure, you can probably see the uh, the latitude that authors try to put there. And I'm sorry that I don't see things your way. I sort of see it the same way, you know, people have ascribed to Da Vinci's uh, Mona Lisa, that it's clear that 
some of the things we are thinking and, and seeing in that portrait are very much 21st or 20th century uh, observations and maybe reflective of the era that we lived in post the atomic bomb, uh, which, which wasn't as true in the Renaissance, but that's really the nature of lasting art. Basically, you're saying we don't even care what the artist had in mind. He gave us a tool to delve into reality and then into personal um, uh, reality as well, using his, as a, his, his product as a springboard. Sure. But getting back to the interpersonal connectedness of that, that a telephone conversation is, I, I think that it, it, it's possible that the relationship is more one-sided than we think, because if it's through the telephone, the person was imagining, but still the voice of that other person was inspiring my imagination. The voice of that other person was, was allowing me to sort of construct an idea about that person that might be richer, as I said, than having that person physically in front of me. You know, before and we, say richer and also more personally relevant. Right. And, and again, whether it is that person or not, it's definitely the, the idea of the person that, that, that was shaped in my imagination. And I think this is really the difference that we who still were part of the last era of old time radio. You know, I remember the CBS Mystery Theater uh, when I yes, was uh, sure, and, and which itself was sort of like a nostalgic uh, extension back to the 30s and 40s. Uh, you don't remember the Shadow or Edgar Bergen or or any of the Mercury Theater offerings. Neither of us were alive, and were but we know that by the time you were growing up in the 50s and myself in the 60s, radio was on its last gasps. But I appreciated Mystery Theater more than if I would have had free. Um, tickets to all Broadway shows. I appreciated it, sure. And I can tell you that the scary aspects that came up often were scary aspects from my own being hidden in Sharon Springs somewhere and being lost from my parents. I plugged it in. I was there, you know. The locations were my locations, not the authors, sure. So, and, and that came uh, from sitting there listening to the radio, listening to the radio and imagining what it looked like. I know you, you you shared me with a previous conversation that that you spent quite a number of hours almost every night with your radio plugged in. There's no singular event that I have there, but I'm saying that was my escape, my escape from misery. Like I was raised in, in, in quite miserable surroundings. I mean, both uh, economically and should we say intellectually stifling. And this was my escape. I was able to leave for several hours a night, actually, and just leave and um, join different people and actually participate in cultures which were totally alien to mine. I hope I'm not revealing too much, but I'm saying that you were also in a, a certain comfort level when you were listening because you were able to listen in the bathroom while you were taking Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So I told you that. No, okay. Let's make it clear. In the bathtub. <laughs> I would sit in the bathtub probably for an hour or so with the radio perched dangerously on the ledge, listening. Sure, this is my, so that's basically almost a physical escape, you know, feeling, uh, and you think of the symbolism being in the bath with, with Freudian wombs. I'm aware of all that stuff. <laughs> right. I think I think you mentioned to me once that uh, <laughs> the Hashkocha Pratis of the balance of that radio that yeah. Who knows, you know, had that radio. I, I, am, I am a living miracle. I mean, I, as I explained to you, I mean, that ra- plugged-in radio was balanced on the curved ledge of a bathtub, and had it slipped in once, that would have been the end of June, okay? And yet, we're talking night after night for quite a few years. Did your European parents 
find it strange that you were so connected to the radio? Uh, no, they were uh, threatened by it because I was connected to the radio and later on to television and later on to groups that they didn't really um, understand what it was after. Like, what's wrong with our culture? What's wrong with the, uh, with the the sustenance we're giving you emotionally and religiously? Why do you have to care about other things? They found it odd. And uh, they took some comfort that I was also scientifically oriented, that I want to excel. And that's, but that wasn't this wasn't career. I wasn't out to be a sociologist or a religious specialist or a uh, a musicologist. I just wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to mention something um, which is more extreme than I mentioned before in terms of Freud and stuff. Freud says that we never really relate to a person. What he says is that basically we take the person, we internalize the person, take from him or her what it is is relevant to us, then project that out onto the person as a screen, and that's who we relate to. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the relationship that I have with you even is not you. It's you as I like to see you insofar as it pushes certain good buttons for me. So that's important to know that the relationships themselves, you can go on the objectivity, which is why your profound statement before that when you have modes of communication that only focus on certain specifics and leaves the left up to you, that lends itself so much more for you becoming an emotional foil for me because you really satisfy aspects or identity issues, which are not really you, but that's fine. It's very important, I think, what you're saying, because you won't be disappointed when you discover the ugly truth, you know, because... What I am. But who's looking for truth? That's right. I'm, 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 to I'm, looking, I'm, I'm looking for that mannequin that represents what I like yes. in terms of making me feel good. So even though now I discover that there's this skeleton or this ugly aspect of that person, I just have to work hard to close that, cauterize that wound, close it up, to go back to that fictional person that I was connected to. This is a little bit dehumanizing on an interpersonal level, but it's MS, right? It's truth. We have to approach. <laughs> Well, look, you know, we, we we all perceive, I see it a little bit different, Sam. I, I see it almost the other way. I think that when I talk to you in these conversations and people who've listened to my podcasts with different people, they say, I, I'm amazed at how much you know, and I'm amazed at how different you are with everybody, right? In other words, like, and, and again, without... There is no true Rabbi Kivalevich. You are someone who just... Rolls with the punches. No, but my point is, is that my relationship with you is it it has a different cadence, has a different back and forth and give and take terms that I might use. You might say it's on a different plane. It's a different each person. You have a different plane for the commonality of the relationship. Sure, right, right, right. And, and therefore, it's almost like you represent a certain aspect of myself. It's sort of what you're saying. It's it's the mirror image of what you're saying, in a way. And I think when we talk about radio versus television, the couch potato aspect of just absorbing, uh, let's take it into now what has happened and where we started today, which was the FaceTime Zoom experience, which has started. It demands looking at that person much more than you would, even in a real conversation. Even if you'd be sitting, Shmila, with me, here in yeah. Jersey, or when I'm going to come to Yerushalayim, we have other clues and tells, things we can look at and other things. We now have to stare at each other. We're looking at each other's face. Zoom. You're zooming in on me. That's right. Right. 
And, and, and people who have teachers like myself have talked about how weary they are after a Zoom class because they're looking into the screen, looking if the other if the other people are allowing themselves to be looked at, looking at the people in a way in a, in a, they weren't doing in their usual uh, lecture or conversation mode. So I think it does take it takes something. I don't know if you've noticed yourself. You've obviously been involved in in Zoom, uh, not just with me. You've been involved in Zoom. Oh, with patients, uh, sure. with patients, and maybe you've noticed that. Well, I can tell you that the the uh, many of the nonverbal cues are much more blatant, and sometimes not only do they compete, they sometimes supersede and they cancel out what the person is saying. Because often, I mean, I can tell you with patients on side, I have to make it a point to watch their eyes, to watch what they're doing with their body as a way of saying what else is he or she saying to me. And here it's in my face. I can't escape it. So sometimes I almost find that sometimes I get distracted by watching the person to the point that the verbal communication recedes to the background. And um, in a sense, that's... um, I would say disrespectful to the other person because most of us say, you know, disregard everything. Listen to what I'm saying to you. And mm-hmm. I'm not listening to what they're saying. I'm watching that grimace. I'm watching that hesitation. I'm watching the enthusiasm. I'm watching you smile when you say something terrible. I'm watching you frown when you say something nice. And I say, oh, you know, I'm getting too much information here almost. Much nicer if you wrote me a letter. As I said earlier, the genie's out of the bottle. And I don't see people necessarily in their phone communications saying, you know, I don't want to FaceTime with you because I want to really talk with you. I don't see that happening. I think people right. will say, if you can FaceTime, please FaceTime. If you can't, I'm going to be macabre with the Evid. The right. fact <laughs> it's just going to be a, a regular phone conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I think we are going to lose. I, I just want to dramatize this, right? What does it mean that in order for me to speak to you, I actually have to put on the shirt? Okay. Like, what am I doing? You know, play, I, I want to say something to you and I have to put on a shirt and I have to put on my glasses, to put on my yarmulke, whatever, whatever uh, uh, trappings I have of what's considered I'm supposed And I'm also supposed to look at you, right? Mm-hmm. I can't close my eyes. I, come on. You know, that's no way to do things. I mean, so realize that we're injecting a lot of other um, uh, paraphernalia. In, in positions, especially in your case, because I know you also you, you like to wash the dishes a lot when you talk to me. So well, I not only what I tell you, some of ma- the major creations on WhatsApp occur in the bathroom. I just saw this great cartoon. They said, if you want to go to the bathroom and all the bathrooms in your house are occupied, turn off the internet for a moment. <laughs> right? And the comment I got from the guy is that, guess where I sent this brilliant piece of information out from? Yes, there's no question about it that cars and bathrooms and all the places that we occupy and walk through, there's no cessation. There's no escape. There's no escape from all these people who are wanting to get into your life. They don't want to leave you alone, right? And you're not in the game unless you respond. Yes, unless you're available 24-7. I mean, I used to get, even in the days of email, like when I was a professor for many years before I was very, very tenured, the idea was, why didn't you answer your email? Say, hey, it was 1.30 in the morning. So I see you were on. Why didn't you answer your email? I have to answer? Yes. Yes, you have to answer. Yes. And like you say, so so much of, it's not, like, when I send a text to someone, I can see when it's read, did they read it in the WhatsApp? So it really, there's no mystery left. 
Yeah, I, I want to uh, suggest a theory, and this goes back to something that we that you touched on before about podcasting. I, I think there's a, been a yin and a yang. I think on one level, it's no longer Dick Tracy or Star Trek futuristic to be able to instantaneously see a person through the magic of whatever these cameras are. On the other hand, I think there is a longing for that imaginative faculty. And I think that's the reason why, despite the trends, people were shocked how podcasting has become almost the supreme uh, way that people are putting out their new creative products through a podcast. Everybody's got up. There's millions and millions of podcasts. And okay, some are as successful as ours. <laughs> some are much more as less. But I think part of why people are listening, and isn't just because, well, I need something to listen to when I'm driving and I can't look at a screen. I think people are actually getting a, a back, and even the young people who never experienced it, who came post the iPhone, are experiencing some of this imaginative aspect. They don't care what Junian Kivilevich look like. They have they have their own ideas. Uh, I met a person over the weekend who listens to my podcasts, and he never had seen me before. And I don't know if he was disappointed or not, but he, but he, he said, oh, I listen to you all the time. And of course, it was strange for him to now meet me. And I've had people tell me, you're Junie? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you? Because they only know you through this program. Yes, right? and I'm violating that their image. I'm somehow destroying what, what I'm supposed to be in their mind. Which, in a way, I, I think is really uh, an attempt to return to that healthy, imaginative radio days. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason why, despite the, the primitive aspect of podcasting, which is the sound effects, Right. You know, like the same things that were going on in, in the 20s and 30s and 40s is what the best uh, podcasts are doing. Of course, they can now uh, even increase the, their uh, efficiency with a lot of computer tools. But it's pretty much the same thing as an old show about the shadow or, or the adventures of, of Superman on the radio. That's really what it's about. Um, uh, the voice that you have and other things. So it's really interesting how what's old has become new. Uh, and, and I think that's the reason why people are finding podcasts precious. Well, but basically what's happened is that we're thr- we've thrown out many babies with the bathwater when we kind of extract it and say, this is what we need. Like, we don't need everything. Like, you know, the song in the year 2525, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to eat. You don't need people. You don't this. You'll have a pill for this and a pill for that. That's not what I want. I want to have to go wash dishes. I want to have to go leave my girlfriend and then drive back to where I live, which is eight hours away. And then that time I have time to think rather than feel obligated to continue the conversation. I'm getting nowhere. So I know I'm going to have to stop off in Binghamton for a coffee. And then I'll give her a call and say, yeah, we'll get to it later. But then I have another four hours. And that's been thrown out. So so that has been... I think advised by sociologists and mental health professionals of have, taking an internet holiday. Yeah, sure. It ain't going to happen. You make it illegal. You know, <laughs> you can't take an internet holiday. Yeah. But people have uh, suggested this as, as an option, what you're talking about, to going to a, at least, and of course, Orthodox Jews have it in some way on, on Shabbos. On Shabbat. Right. Although you do know that the um, incidence of young people of course. adhering to limitations 
and electronic uh, communication is very low, even among the real Orthodox communities. In fact, I will go take you a step further. As a rabbi, I would say the same way Rabbonim had to search out a heter for various types of activities, whether it was saying brachas in front of women who didn't have their hair covered completely, or it was giving prepubescent children aliyahs, and then they came up with halachic rationale, I think they're going to have to come up with a rationale of recognizing that they can't turn their phone off, and that it's only it's it's only a grama, that it's not a daraisa, and that there are people who Again, we, we, we had this, unfortunately, with uh, critically ill children or, or mentally ill children. You need to turn on the television for that. I used to write those prescriptions for, from families saying, <laughs> yes, has to stay on. Yes, and you should turn it on for the child. And I think the same thing is going to be true. There's going to be situations where, yes, the, if that person is, he won't be able to survive without and also, they, a lot of them, I, I don't know if we want to get into this, a lot, of, a lot of the youngsters have to be given a way to reconcile their avowed religious commitment with the fact that this is something that they're just going to either transgress or you have to come up with a way to deal with it because they feel dissonant, they feel upset about it, but it's something they can't control, literally, even though they're not crazy. It's just, how do you live with that? How do you live without oxygen? Impossible. So, and, and, it, and it therefore behooves the halachic authorities to understand who they're dealing with. I think they can almost uh, pull out the honest card. I know sometimes, I know medically, especially with psychiatric problems, the rabbi would ask me, is this something that's beyond their control? And I'd say, yes. They'd say, fine, and they can do it. Okay, and, and basically transgressing things which you might consider really inappropriate, they say, fine. So I think at this token, it's almost like a, it's a mass ap- pandemic where everybody needs oxygen all of a sudden. Like, you need to have injections. Sure, take it on Shabbat. That's almost like that. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but sure. Right. I, I think the types of anxiety... Yes, that's what it is. Anxiety when you don't have it. And the sense that, to a point, that the person... It's a sense of doom. It's a sense of doom that imposes them. On that note, Sam, we can end today on actually something just happened a couple of hours ago. As you know, I'm going to be going there to Israel, and we hope to be welcoming a new baby. And my wife said, you better go get a flu shot, because you're not going to be able to get close to that baby unless you have the two weeks of the flu shot. So I went dutifully to get my flu shot today, uh, waited for a while, and the person in front of me was coming back to the, the urgent care center, extremely distressed, extremely upset, because they were sure that their cell phone was in the examining room that they had just vacated. And they demanded to be able to go in there and find their cell phone. This was a medical emergency. Whereas myself, I don't have it. I'm sure I left it here. And I I could see the agitation, the fear, uh, even (laughs) through the mask that he was wearing, that he had to go and and, and find his object. He had to find it. And it, it wasn't just because, Sam, of all the proprietary information that was in that cell phone. Sure. That, <laughs> don't have your phone, right? Uh, and he was allowed to go back and look for it. Perhaps he had dropped it in some crevice. So I think it was very, very much a, a reflection of what mm-hmm. we're saying, that type of, um, <laughs> that need that he, that he had. It's FOMO to an nth degree. It's like you're missing out. You don't even know what you're missing out, but you, it's, it's 
almost like acts. I see it almost like oxygen. Yeah, food. Like people have anxiety. I go to this country. I eat kosher. What am I going to eat? You start. You start getting an anxiety attack. This reminds me of what Gary Goldman's quip when he was talking about the way we refer to this supercomputer that we have in our hands, and we call it a phone. He says it's like talking about a Lexus and calling it a cup holder, <laughs> because. The aspect of using it as an actual telephone or phone of connecting is is really secondary. It, it it is much more than that. It's it's my way to find out about the world. I'll even tell you again another medical story. When I was having a little bit of medical issues lately, um, and I was questioning what the physician's assistant was saying, the physician's assistant just took out their phone and said, "Well, you know, I'm going to show you here what it says on my phone about." Uh, this situation that you that you're referring to about whether you can be allergic to this type of medicine here. Let me just put it on my phone. So even you know it, it's really become almost really like a science fiction world where it's my it's my robotic attachment to myself, and I, I can't even engage in my professional life without without having it ready. Like you know, your brain is half dependent on it. They're linked into it. Yeah. Well, okay, my friends, as we know, uh, we will uh, see you hopefully next month. Take care, everyone. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 